0: For Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 340 of the podcast. It is April 23rd, 2019. And I'm talking today with Joy Furnival about Lean in the British NHS. So my guest today is Dr. Joy Furnival. She's an experienced senior NHS manager, improvement leader, and chartered engineer. So the doctor refers to her PhD in engineering. Um, You can find a link to that thesis and all sorts of other things if you go to the page of this episode at leanblog.org slash 340. But I first crossed paths with Joy at a Lean Healthcare event in England back in 2007. At the time, she was working for David Fillingham in the Bolton NHS Trust, where she was the director of Lean Transformation Efforts. They were an early adopter of Lean in the NHS. So in the episode today, we talk about how we are in some way uh, Lean twins, as we both started our careers as engineers in manufacturing. But our career paths then diverged when, when she joined the NHS while I've worked as an outside consultant. I really appreciate her perspectives You know, as we talk here about her roles in a few different hospitals and uh, her role as a national improvement advisor for the NHS. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And again, uh, to learn more about Joy and some of the work she's been involved in, you can go to leanblog.org slash three four zero. <laughs> Joy, thank you for joining us today. It's great to have you as a guest on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: Well, I think you know, we have a lot of uh, interesting things to talk about today. And really, it's just, you know, as we, we get um, into the conversation here, if you can start off by, uh, you know, please introducing yourself uh, to the audience and, you know, tell you know, a little bit about your career and we'll have a chance to come back. Uh, and talk in more detail. But if you can give sort of an overview of some of the roles and and your professional background, that would be a great start.
1: Okay. So, uh, hello, everybody. My name is Joy Furnival, and I work in the National Health Service in England for a national body um, that's part of NHS Improvement and NHS England. Um, And I work in a, a national role helping to support lean implementation and lean practice within healthcare. Uh, I've worked in the National Health Service for around 13 years now. Um, and before that, I worked in industry as a manufacturing engineer um, for about 10 years, where I was also doing a lot of lean-based practice. So i um, quite enjoying managing to keep my professional background, but working in lots of different sectors.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and that's certainly we, you and I have shared... Um, Backgrounds there where I also listeners might know I started my career in manufacturing before um, getting into healthcare also about thirteen years ago.
1: Right, <laughs> yeah. that's right.
0: Um, so you know, the, I think the main focus of our conversation will be healthcare. But you know, can you talk a little bit about working as a manufacturing engineer and, and some of your? Um, recollections of the work you did there how you learned about lean how the work you were doing was influenced by lean and the toyota production system
1: sure so um i did an engineering degree at a very traditional university and it so happened that the first year i was there they decided to put this radical new uh final year seminars in place um that covered what were uh uh, titled japanese improvement techniques at the time Um, And it was radical. There were a lot of people very sceptical within the School of Engineering about the course. um, But I really wanted to do that. Um, And in that, that was really my first introduction to what we would now call lean. Uh, I did it in 1996. It was the year the book, Lean Thinking, was published. um, And that was part of the the reading list for the course. Um, And I can remember my very first seminar, we went in and we had to play a just-in-time game with Lego. Um, and transport different parts across different tables to simulate um, different inventory levels and different cycle times. Um, And I was hooked. Just from that seminar, I was hooked. Um, And I devoured all the possible uh, lean-related books I could within the library, whether they were written by Shigeo Shingo or others from Productivity Press. Um, And I loved it. Um, And the the fantasticness of that course, that final year, is we had a lot of um, uh, placements uh, within industry, Um, And I went to university in the northeast of England as an undergraduate. And uh, that's where quite a few uh, Japanese automotive manufacturers are based. Um, And so that allowed us to visit a lot of tier one and tier two automotive suppliers as they were beginning to really get to grips with Kanban and just in time um, implementation. And that was fantastic. And I'm so glad I had that opportunity. Following that, I was a sponsored graduate engineer with um, a company called ICI, a big um, large-scale chemical manufacturer in england at the time they've now been acquired by axo nobel a kind of a british version of dupont i suppose um and um that was my first experience of well how do you translate all these uh, concepts that i've learned about uh lean in automotive into the process industry where you've typically got big heavy uh continuous plant that makes um, you know it's high risk it's safety critical um, and you can't just move things around you've got to go through a safety process to do that um, and you can't just stop the line Um, there there might be a risk of explosion if you stop the line so that was my first experience of well how do you translate these principles across and i was really lucky to work with a number of um, individuals who'd had the privilege of learning about just in time and so on and we worked together about well how do you adopt and adapt this approach within to a different context and I think that learning was pretty important for when I jumped from manufacturing into healthcare, because I'd learned a little bit about how do you adapt the principles of lean into a different context already to then make another jump of how do you uh, adapt and adopt into another sector. And I think that was very helpful um, for me to really understand the principles rather than just different solutions. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and again, um, there, we have a lot of shared background where, you know, um, I when I, I was first introduced to lean, you, like you said, there was a real heavy emphasis on just in time. And and the professor that I first learned this from in an industrial engineering course had a very strong interest in questions of uh, production flow and inventory management and buffering. And uh, that that was all good stuff, but it was it was uh, you know I think an incomplete view of lean. there were some very specific tactics that, that were taught and we didn't get into the principles. I didn't really start learning that until I was in the workplace and had mentors and start reading about that. So uh, principles like respect for people are of course critically important, not just the tools and tactics. What, can, what, can you share maybe some of your thoughts on, on how your learning and understanding evolved as well?
1: Sure, I totally agree, and I, I feel like I've had a very similar story, and, and I think many others I talked to did too. Because certainly back in the mid nineties, we were learning lead by learning tools for certain. You know, we'd learn single minute exchange of die, we'd learn about uh, Kanban, we'd learn about just in time, but we didn't really lead, learn some of the people side of change. And I think that's where some of my experiences of having work based placements um, during the final year of my course, and then my first years with ICI, were really significant because. You were then trying to apply these lean tools that you'd learnt in a you know, very clinical environment in a classroom into the real world where uh, shift operators would look at you like you were mad if you suggested things to be done in a different way and use standard work in a different way. And I think that principle about, you know, the people who need to improve the work are the people that do the work. Um, I think I, learnt, I had to learn that very quickly because of the nature of the assignments that I was given I can remember one assignment was with a company called Shot Glass, and they were making a flat television screens at the time, which was very radical for the mid-90s. And it was kind of a statistical process control kind of problem because glass was going into a furnace and it was bending, and they needed it to not bend. So you tried to get rid of the variation in that process. And, you know, you were an engineer. You could just go in and solve that and turn dials and make that work. But, of course, that wouldn't last If I just did that on a short term assignment, the operating team that ran that furnace really needed to both be involved in it and actually come up with the solutions themselves and solve the problem themselves. If there was any chance of that solution sustaining after I'd gone. And of course, you get very frustrated as an engineer because you sometimes can see an answer way before everyone else can. But that learning around, well, actually, it's more about how you bring people with you and how it how it, everybody needs to talk through a problem and talk through potential solutions um, and have a voice in that. That becomes much more important than just the let's fix the problem today, kind of quick engineering fix to something. And I think I, I learned that there. But I think I think you obviously learn more as you go through your career. But I think that that grounding and doing that so early on was so critical for me and really understanding that lead value of respect for people.
0: Yes. Yes. Definitely. And we'll we'll come back to that, and, and maybe you know, talk about more examples of that from healthcare. But there's one other thing you said there um, that that particularly piqued my interest. You're talking about working in a process industry where people very well could have said, "Well, you know, this is not an assembly line. We don't build cars." We hear people in healthcare say that. Um, you, you said there was a risk of an explosion if you stop the line. You know, there there would be. Uh, in certain circumstances, grave risk to patients. If we were to say, "Well, lean means you need to stop this operation right now," while the patient's uh, chest is cut open and exposed, and you know, like that would that would probably be an inappropriate uh, copy paste of um, something that would be fine on an assembly line, right?
1: Right, that's right. So that for me was one of the first things that I had to learn about how you adapt the principles because. Uh, If you're working on a big ethylene cracker that, you know, might kill 30,000 people if it goes wrong, you're just not going to cool down a cracker because you've decided to stop the line. Uh, So you have to find alternative ways of doing that. And that that might be much more about, okay, what's our deadline for solving this? And what's the risk if we carry on with this problem? You know, how much um, how much flaring would we have to make out the cracker and all the rest of it? But you can continue to problem solve it, but just put different time constraints on it. If you think about the principle of stop the line, which is kind of force everybody to come and fix a problem because the cost of that lost production is so high and you don't want making defects, the principles there you can still apply, you just have to apply them in a different way when it's unsafe to stop the line. And I think. You know, I think sometimes we forget you can be creative about the way you apply the principles. It isn't just a, right, that's how they do it in automotive. Therefore, every other industry must do it the exact same way. Every industry has got their own context. They've got different amounts of people who work on a shift. They've got different amounts of people with different knowledge. They've got different contexts. You know, healthcare has people who are part of the process, patients. So the process is co-produced. It isn't separate like it would be in manufacturing. So how you apply those principles, whether it's stop the line or any other sorts of uh, lean principles absolutely has to be adapted to suit the context and the sector that you're working in.
0: Yes, very, very true. And I, you know, I've, you know, previously, you know, shared some of my own reflections. Um, the, the book Practicing Lean uh, that, uh-huh. that I wrote and we had a number of people contribute to, um, you know, I certainly shared stories from when I worked in manufacturing, I was the engineer who was tasked with uh, developing uh, a visual uh, kanban system for production and, and, and doing you know uh, cards to help trigger when the setups were being done, and 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 that really that failed because as you were saying, I think it was a, a technically correct solution um, that that I pushed on others, and um, we, we we can do better than that. You know, I, I had an opportunity to spend some time working with um, a, a hospital in, in the NHS over 10 years ago. And it was in the pathology department. And at that point, I, I had started to learn enough uh, through, through some of you know, my own mistakes and coaching I, I got um, to, to engage uh, the laboratory professionals in the work that was being done. And, you know, when, it, when I came into that, um, that pathology department, some of the people there viewed lean very negatively because previously there had been somebody who who came in and told them how to rearrange their specimen processing area and that was of course that was not very well received and um I you know I uh, sort of had to recover from that a little bit so okay we're we're going to do things differently here we're going to engage you and you know, it took some time for some of the the people involved to trust me because, again, here here I was as an as an outsider, and you know, I think uh, the, the the improvement process went so much more smoothly and was so much more effective and sustainable uh, because we engaged the people doing the work, like like you were saying.
1: Yeah, sure, and that that again sounds so familiar. There's a lot of, I suppose you might call it fake lead. I think you've called it L A M E on some of your blogs, whereby. A lot of people may have, have experienced lean done practice very badly. Um, I'm, I'm sure I've practiced it badly on occasion. I, I don't think any of us are, you know, <laughs> right. to But, you know, you can go in and just say, right, you need to implement a cell or you need to implement Kanban or you need to implement just in time and just tell people how to do it. But that is completely counter to that lean principle of respect for people. Um, and I think the one thing I've definitely learned as a, you know, 23-year lean practitioner now is, Without the respect for people principle being part of your practice, you're not really practicing lead.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Um, and, and that was one of the reflections um, that I shared in the book, Practicing Lean, of like, is it helpful to label something as fake lean or lean is mistakenly executed? Um I, 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 you know, I try not, I try not to be judgmental. It's, it's, it's hard sometimes, but you're right. Somebody may have experienced something that's different than what we would do um, as lean practitioners and um, that creates, that creates challenges. But, you know, I, I think as, as long as people are learn as long as, you know, as long as we learn from our mistakes, that's better than uh, repeating the same mistakes over and over again throughout our career.
1: Yeah, and I, I also wonder if there's just something about the, you know, maybe it's a, a phase that uh, every lean practitioner has to go through where they have to learn that for themselves. Maybe there's something in the, the developmental process around, you know, you learn a tool, you want to apply it, you accidentally then make other people do it without asking their opinion. And then you realise how does it work? And maybe there is just something about people have to learn that themselves. And it isn't something that we could just share through books and talks, you know, maybe, maybe that's just part of the learning process.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so maybe let's, let's talk a little bit more joy then about how you came to work in healthcare. I'm sure there's an interesting story there. You made, you made the shift from manufacturing into healthcare. You said 13 years ago. Yeah.
1: Uh, 2005, six time. Um, yeah, so it is quite an interesting story. Uh, basically, the best man from our wedding, my husband and I's wedding, his wife worked for the NHS. And um, we were talking at dinner one night and I was said, I'm uh, looking for a new job. And she said, why don't you work for the NHS? And I looked at her a little bit agog because I said, well, why would an engineer work at the NHS? You don't need engineers, you need doctors and nurses. <laughs> Um, and she said, "No, no, no. We do need other people in the NHS. Why don't you apply?" And she 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 directed me to um, a website about um, that was trying to recruit people into the NHS who would had different careers. So kind of a mid uh, mid career recruitment um, process. Um, and at the time, I was pregnant, so I didn't apply for it. But my I, I nudged my husband into applying for the job instead, yeah. and he got. You know, um, and we would both worked for ICI and we'd both been successful in the ICI recruitment process. So when the opportunity came around again, uh, we thought there was a fairly reasonable ch- chance that perhaps I would get through too. Um, and for us, it felt that there was quite a lot of shared values between uh, ICI, where we'd worked at the NHS. And maybe you think that's surprising. It's a private sector company, and a public sector company. But some of the values around equity and fairness and um you know, people being able to be treated in a way they should be treated, and kind of integrity and a professional mindset really seemed to appeal uh, to us. And we we felt there was a lot in common, and certainly through the interview process, there was a lot of hoops that that seemed to be reinforced that initial that initial thought that maybe this would be a good place to work. Um, And I was successful that I got through. And uh, my first role in the NHS uh, was at uh, the Royal Liverpool and Broad Green University Hospitals Trust uh, in the centre of Liverpool, um, which is a very large university teaching hospital, big research department uh, connected strongly with the University of Liverpool. Um, And it was a really great job. And I originally thought I would end up in some kind of ops management job, you know, doing a waiting list, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually, I ended up in an improvement job that they created especially for me based on my CV. Um, And I helped to set up some of the original improvement work they did in that hospital. I I obviously use lean as my method because that's the method I've been taught. Um, And um, we were lucky enough to get on um, a national programme um, as part of the NHS Institute for Innovation and Improvements work, um, which was the pilot work that led to the development of what was known as the Productive Series in the UK, which was um, a lean-based um, uh, box kit, I suppose, that really was was flavoured strongly with lean tools and lean approaches to improvement.
0: And, and so what was... Uh what were some of the boundaries of that role that was created for you? Because, you know, the, I'm sure as you, you started seeing as you got into healthcare, there are so many different challenges, so many different improvements that could be made uh, beyond waiting lists, right? I mean, how, how, what was what was that process yeah. of sort of getting in and discovering um, what what to I do? Think,
1: yeah, and this is why I think, you know, the engineering training and the lean training really kicked in because my immediate habit, subconscious habit, was to just go and find out. So if people would say in meetings to me, Joy, what are we going to do about this? And I'd just be really open. and just say, well, I don't know yet. I don't even know what happens in that department. Which in hindsight may have been quite countercultural. I don't know, but I that's just how I'd been trained. So I said that. Um, so I did a lot of um, walking the floor with people, visiting departments, hearing what improvement work they already had going in their area and trying to find out what would be helpful to them. Would it be some kind of network? Would it be more improvement training? Would it be something about goal alignment or clear priorities? Or would it just be practical hands-on help in the sense of, look, we want to try to use a, I don't know, a fishbone. Can you help us do it? Can we just have you in the room so we're more confident to use it? And my feeling in the NHS is often it's confidence that stops a lot of improvement work more than knowledge. So sometimes I think that being in the room, really made a much bigger difference than it perhaps would have done in manufacturing or perhaps was what I was expecting. Um, I did a lot of other things that engineers would do normally, but again, reflecting on 13 years in the NHS, maybe it's less normal in healthcare. So I would go and collect data myself. I'd just go and sit in a clinic and observe myself. Um, Because again, if you were in a factory, that's just what you'd do. If you wanted to do something in a welding shop, you'd go and watch the welding shop for a day and talk to all the staff. Um, and that's what I did. And I probably spent six months doing that kind of work before I really felt like I'd got a bit of a bit, of, bit more of a view as to what needed to happen. But I, I would add to that in the sense of healthcare so big. So, um, you know, a hospital sometimes feels like it's 10 factories squished together rather than one manufacturing facility. So I think some of some of that adaptation of the principles really becomes relevant because some of what you might do to improve in a factory, you need to suddenly kind of scale up in your head about, well, how will that work in such a big organisation with 24-7 shifts and actually a, a, you know, a, a team of, of 100 plus people, which is a completely different scale from a communications perspective, from a training people in the new way of doing things perspective and, and involving people in that. How do you involve people who only work nights or who only work on, on days on a weekend, which is, is less common in manufacturing. Most people these days have moved to 24-7 rotating shift pants. So um, there are a lot of challenges that I wasn't expecting, I suppose, partly because just because of the sheer complexity and size of scale. So I think that being willing to go, I don't know, made a big difference, actually. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Um, to to go and see and confirm and see the real reality instead of assuming that that's a good example um, a good example to set for others as as you're trying to teach them about lean right
1: sure yeah the other thing that really got me was terminology so obviously I didn't know any medical terminology mm-hmm. uh, and the first thing I was looking for on my first day I can remember it still quite vividly I was looking for the equivalent of a production daily production sheet you know how many patients were treated yesterday you know just like how many widgets were produced last week and I kept saying have you not got a have you not got something like a production sheet or a daily production sheet and everyone would look at me completely blankly and it probably took about two months before I realized that the language was just completely different and it was in the NHS anyway I don't know what it's called in America it's called activity so there's an activity report, and it's on a daily sit rep. And if I knew those words and asked for that, I probably would have had that on the first day, but I didn't know those words. Yeah. So learning the methodology took a bit of time as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it, it makes me chuckle sometimes when uh, people get uncomfortable with Japanese words that um, are, are sometimes used in the context of lean. Well, healthcare loves Latin, so they're certainly open uh, uh-huh. They're open to jargon and terminology from, from a different language and, you know, to a fault. Sometimes I've, I've found the Latin uh, can get in the way, um, maybe, ju- maybe just as sometimes the Japanese language can get in the way of good communication and understanding.
1: Yeah, yeah. Jargon barriers work in all sorts of different directions, I, I think. And I like using the Japanese language when I'm teaching because I want my students to be able to go and, you know, look things up and read more about them. So, yeah, good, but it's also kind of the technical language about improvement. So it, it would also be unfair to not teach that, even mm-hmm. though it is,
0: just you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one other, there's one other thing I wanted you to maybe elaborate on a little bit. You said that sometimes it's not so much a lack of knowledge, but a lack of confidence that gets in the way of improvement work. Could you say more about that or maybe share an example or, or what you've done to help build confidence in others?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think it's multifaceted, but, you know, in terms of just talking about it now, I think there's something about people being prepared to say this stuff doesn't work right and I've got an idea to fix it. Um, and that that kind of, I think it comes out in two ways. One, it's saying, I, I, uh, you know, I've got an idea that I, I want some help with fixing it. I've been even prepared to say that in front of peers. So if you've already got a huge reputation for being, you know, a very clever uh medical professional or clinical professional and then suddenly you go i don't know there's there's a risk that comes with that that might affect your status or your hierarchy or you know your sense of identity and so on so you know people have to be comfortable saying i don't know something so that's the first thing and saying it's okay to say i don't know Mm -hmm. Um, and the second thing is is just thinking about the wider cultural conditions so that if people do say i think this doesn't work the reaction is not, well, that's your fault then because you've not made it work. And uh, just thinking about how blame cultures can impact whether people are prepared to one, speak up about problems and two, step forward um, to do something about them. So I think there's kind of those cultural, psychological side of change. Um, and I think mm-hmm. then there's something about the confidence bit because if you've been on a half day course or a one day course and you've learned, I don't know, 10 different improvement approaches you know, a cause and effect diagram, a driver diagram, um, how to do process mapping and all the rest of it, it might be a bit overwhelming, if I'm honest, to learn all that in one day. So to then suddenly go back to your own department, having, I don't know, learned how to process map a cup of tea, making a cup of tea, and now you're trying to process map a really complex healthcare process with lots of different people involved and lots of different complex, in, you know, interactions with different different departments. It's quite hard, I think, to jump from a very simple process map into to mapping a much more complex one. And I think sometimes just being there to encourage and to help people apply those tools in the real world um, is part of that Respectful People thing. It is part of yeah. helping people do that. And I think sometimes improvement professionals can get a bit hooked onto the, well, we're doing the classroom bit, but not the real world bit. Um, or we're only doing the real world bit and not helping with the learning bit. Um, so we're just after the results and not the learning. And I think I kind of think that it's important to do both. And um, so I think kind of things that I would say with that is um, I've been learning CATA this last six months. This, the work that Mike robert has been um, uh, researching. And, you know, you have to go, one I don't know with it because you don't. Yeah, I've done leave for 23 years, but I don't really know that much about CATA. Um, And you have to be prepared to be quite vulnerable in the coaching uh, interaction to say, uh, I don't actually know much about my current condition. I thought I did, but I've just discovered that I don't. Okay, so what's my next step? Well, it might be a go and see experiment or it might be another experiment. And in that next experiment, there might be an outcome that I'm not expecting and it might be quite difficult. Uh, derometry it might not be a good experiment and how am I going to handle that with my land managers or with peers or with clients so I think there's something about being able to role model that vulnerability um, about ambiguity and I think if people see that more often and they see people saying I don't know then I think that helps make the gesture that others might then respond to in the sense of they're also prepared to say I don't know and okay I'll, I'll step forward even though it's ambiguous."
0: No, I, well, I appreciate you sharing that, and you know, I I, I, I have similar lack of deep experience with the Toyota Kata methodology. You and I are Lean twins in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, there there are parallels, right? Because I think um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. But one of my reflections is sometimes it learning and experience obviously is helpful but sometimes it creates its own burden where it's it's easy for someone to say well i know this already or you know if 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 there's an opportunity to challenge or uh, ourselves or improve or unlearn something that can get in the way and i think that's that's true in organizations as well right
1: sure that unlearning is so tough, you know it's kind of you've got to be prepared to suspend what you already know or suspend your scepticism or your disbelief whatever it is Um, and that cognitive bias you know it's so so much easier isn't it to stick with what you know and just say look this is i've done this before this is the answer and go with it and it feels quicker doesn't it and when you're in a really pressured environment you just want to do the stuff that feels quicker sometimes but i think that practice and it is a practice of continually being um reflexive Trying to and learn what you do consciously and having deliberate intent to try and get better at solving problems through a, through a practice, I think it's really valuable. Like the, the, the Kata uh, practice, you know, it looks so easy in the book. And then when you try to do it, you, you really totally <laughs> mm-hmm. discover that, you know, knowledge is not understanding at all when it comes to yeah. really these behaviours and habits that make a difference for the leadership for improvement.
0: Yeah. So one difference in our backgrounds and CVs is that you have had these roles directly working inside um, a health system, a a healthcare organization. So I thought maybe we could explore that a little bit more. Um, When I first came, my very first trip to England was for a lean healthcare conference that Dan Jones and the Lean Enterprise Academy put on in 2008. And one of the speakers there uh, it was David Fillingham from um, the from Bolton from the Bolton NHS Foundation Trust. So I was wondering if you could talk about your some of your roles and and experiences there. And maybe first for the American listeners, just a terminology thing: what what's meant by a foundation trust as opposed to just saying Bolton NHS Hospital?
1: Okay, so so the foundation trust element is uh, it was a policy from the early two thousands that meant that if hospitals met a certain criteria on the way they managed their finances and the way that they were managing some of their uh, national target adherents, that they would earn some kind of autonomy from the political centre. So if you reached finan- Foundation Trust status, it meant you could do different things with your capital plan for new buildings or new equipment and so on, because you'd have that earned autonomy. So that's kind of what that meant. And I joined Bolton uh, working for Dame Fillingham just one month before they achieved foundation trust status. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it's fair to say I was broadly employed there when they were foundation trust the whole time. Um, it meant that the, the Minister of State for Health could not necessarily directly um, say you must do this tomorrow. Uh, the reality is we all work in systems with lots of stakeholders and it, it's never as clear cut as that. But in principle on paper, that's kind of what it meant.
0: Yeah. So it's really just sort of an organizational structure status. Did, did that yeah. help? Did that autonomy help David and yourself and others with lean, or was that incidental?
1: Uh, it possibly helped. I think I was still too early in my NHS journey to maybe notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, possibly if you have David on a future podcast, he could, could comment on that more. But um, he I think it possibly helped because of that autonomy, certainly in the early years. We didn't have to justify so much, I suspect, about why we were doing certain things uh, in a way that we might have had to do if we were still uh, centrally controlled. Uh, I don't think I don't think it had a significant impact in the early years. However, OK. OK. Yeah. Um, yeah. So
0: what, what, what you were um, head of Lean Transformation and, and, and can you talk about some of the journey there at Bolton?
1: Yeah, so in many ways, for me, Bolton was a, a is a real career highlight for me, I suppose, uh, and it was a real turning point for my career in healthcare. So um, when I joined Bolton, I, I you know I'd seen lots of noise in the early days of social media and all the rest of it around um, what was going on at Bolton and the lead work there. And I can remember reading a, a, a very early case study that they they put out that was shared through the national networks. I remember reading it thinking, oh, they're really trying to do lean properly. I want to go and work there. Uh, the irony being that I had been offered a job to work there in my original recruitment and had turned it down. So um, I kind of had in the back of my head, right, that I really want to go get a job at Bolton. And as luck would have it while I was on maternity leave with my second child, the job came up at Bolton as the head of lean transformation job. And I was successful in getting that job, which really quite brilliant when you think about it. And I feel very lucky to have have done that. Um, When I got there, probably they'd been about two years into their lead journey at that point. So it was that that real transition point from, right, we're just experimenting and trying it out into the okay, we want to do this properly. And seriously, how do you transition it from a load of ad hoc enthusiastic projects into something a little bit more substantive? And had also all the challenges of of, that comes with projects that have been led by enthusiastic people at the beginning and how you turn that into something more mainstream. So some things were sustaining and other things were not sustaining and all those kinds of things were going on. Um, And I had a really great team and I was I'm still so privileged uh, to have worked with many of them. And Bolton had worked with Simpler Consulting uh, in a pro bono relationship as part of the IHI 100,000 Lives campaign at the time. So some of the very early work at Bolton was particularly related to mortality uh, reduction uh, connected to the uh, trauma pathway and a lot of fantastic work had gone on to uh, realign the location and the physical layout in uh, ambulatory units and the trauma resuscitation areas and so on. It was really fantastic work Um, and i very uh, grateful to all the expertise that Simpler shared with Bolton um, at the time. The, the team that I inherited really knew their stuff despite the fact they'd kind of learned it on the job um, and it wasn't their background you know they were, they were nurses, there were physios and so on in the team and they just learned that on the job uh, and really well done for Simpler in that because I think they did a really fantastic knowledge transfer job actually um, so we moved that forward quite quickly we scaled up at that point uh, so we moved from just having work in trauma and some work in the pathology lab right the way through to a massive value stream analysis piece of work in urgent care uh, looking in particular at respiratory and gastroenterology as relatively high volume pathways and um, with a view of achieving the national um, accident and emergency four-hour standard so at the time um, that was to achieve four hours within for 98 percent of people who came to accident and emergency um, (coughs) to make sure that was done within four hours Mm -hmm. and the the trust had never achieved that at that point Uh, and it was under considerable pressure to achieve that target uh, to put that politely really Uh, so the major value stream piece of work we did was was really um aimed at one achieving that standard it was a national requirement but two making sure we really did that in a way that one engaged the staff that worked in that pathway who were really struggling it was a really tough place to work and not a pleasant environment when you know you're feeling overwhelmed with patient load workload and so Mm -hmm. on and also we wanted to make it a much better patient experience um as it happened in that kind of go and see way, I, I had had to be admitted to an accident emergency only two months after I started because I have asthma. Yeah. So I got to see for myself what it felt like to be a patient in, in in that pathway. Um, you know, on a night when it's very busy and there isn't enough equipment or there aren't enough trolleys, you know, and there's people in the corridor and uh, it, it really wasn't a pleasant patient experience. And I used that story as a way of, of of thinking about, well, how do we really make this better? So we, in much the same way as at Liverpool, we did a lot of walking the line, a lot of listening to staff. We did some sharing, actually, with ThedaCare. We asked them to share what they'd done with some of their work, uh, ward-based improvement uh, work at uh, ThedaCare, who were about two years ahead of Bolton at the time. So it was a really great opportunity to learn from what they'd already done. And what they wish they'd not done as well. So we could try and not make the same mistakes. So we did quite a lot of ward based. I suppose you'd call it in a lead way uh, cell work. We we drew from the productive ward. We drew from care, and we developed our own way of doing that. And, you know, so that included putting in visual management on whiteboards so that you could try to get a feel for what the status of patients were every day. We we'd experimented. How can patients be involved in this? This is what's happening to you every day. What would you like to happen to you today? What matters to you today? We experimented with um, different ways of aligning different teams, you know, where the therapists would come and do their their part of the, the care process, when the, the occupational therapists would come, when the junior doctors would come, and so on. And we had some fantastic clinicians who were prepared to really change their practice. Mm. So the respiratory team decided instead of doing twice weekly ward rounds, they were going to move to a a model whereby there would be daily ward rounds and there would be continuity of care and they would work for two weeks at a time on each ward, um, which really made a difference and it allowed us to put that daily uh, communication cell in place where there was follow-up from the day before. So the consultant would leave the meeting and say, okay, yesterday we wanted these two TTOs, we wanted this review done, we this referral to radiology and so on, and really check that things had got done. And that led to us being able to take off one and a half days of of stay. And that flow improvement because of that bed capacity made such a difference for the winter that for the first time and only time, the trust did achieve the 98% standard. And I say the only time because it was reduced to 95% the following year.
0: Well, so I you know, hearing you talk about, um, you know, improvements in patient care and trying to create a better working environment allows us to demonstrate respect for people in some very tangible ways, respect for patients, respect for staff that we, we don't want to say, well, we're going to be re- respectful to patients and therefore put a lot of pressure on staff to increase, uh, throughput, reduce waiting times. Um, we, we have to keep things in balance and, and keep find find a way to practice respect for all stakeholders, no matter how well intended it might be for somebody else in a, in a different setting, um, to, to, let's say, only respect patients, right?
1: Yeah, right. And, and I've obviously just given you the nice glossy story that I'm not saying it was very easy to do what we did. And had a wonderful lady called Cindy who worked with me. And she worked very hard, and I'm so grateful to her. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of very difficult conversations. And I'm not saying we always got it right. Sometimes, you know, inevitably we we put our foot in it or we, we did, you know, whether people might have felt they got told what to do. So I'm not saying we got it right all the time. We, we definitely kept having to learn and adapt as we went. But I think the thing that really made a difference was some of the clinical leadership that we had, who were, uh, people who were really going, you know what, we're not putting up with it like this anymore. We really want it to change. We want it to change for us as staff and we want it to change for our patients. And here's a method that might help us. Why not give it a go? Uh, and I think some of the simulations that are so common in the lead community, you know, what is batch production versus flow production? You know, looking at um, how errors are created, how you deal with errors and the concepts of judoka, I think some of those really resonated with the idea of, you know, if you do a ward round only twice a week, well, actually, you're batching clinical decision making. So how do you move to one decision flow? And I think those ideas and how we adapted the lean principles into clinical practice, which, you know, I couldn't have done as my own as an engineer. I did that with the whole team and, and all the clinicians really did the, the heavy thinking about, well, what would it mean for me, really made a difference. And I think some of the leadership around that was very strong. And I think one of the things I've really noticed in in healthcare, is the leadership side of uh, improvement really has much more of an impact than perhaps it did in manufacturing, where you could probably still do some of the changes in manufacturing, even if your leadership team and your team leader were a arguably a little bit more mediocre you you know you can do things to the machine and the standard work anyway with with or without that much harder in healthcare because you do need that leadership about well we've agreed a new way of doing it let's give it a go and everybody agreed to give it a go um yeah
0: yeah so um i want to talk also about the role that you played at more uh, of a national level And, and if you could set context um What you know, organizationally, um, NHS Improvement, how that fits in, how that group interacts with um, the hospitals and uh, around the country.
1: Okay, so today is the first day that my organization is a new organization. So, my apologies if I don't get this completely, it's still emerging. So, up until yesterday, um, NHS Improvement was uh, one of the national regulators for um, healthcare in the UK. Um, And it had a remit for uh, lots of things, including financial stability and viability, uh, national targets and standards, as well as quality and improvement. So patient safety, all those kinds of things. Uh, As of today, we have um, uh, formed, for for want of a better phrase, a joint venture with NHS England. Um, And NHS England is another national body that largely uh, is a commissioning kind of function. So we've merged together the commissioning and the regulatory functions uh, as of today. And there there's a lot of good reasons for that. Not least, there's, there's an awful lot of overlap in what you do as a regulator versus what you do as a commissioner um, around um, quality assurance type of roles and, and financial balance. So that's the kind of the logic for it. Um, and we're, we're across the whole of England so we're only for the NHS in England we're not for the NHS in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland uh, so we only cover England and um, the relationship we have with trusts and other NHS bodies so GP practices and so on um, is we're um, standalone in the sense of we are separate organisations but the money and the commissioning groups will flow to those bodies so NHS England will ask um, clinical uh, commissioning groups to then commission local services who will then contract that with the trusts. And then the role, the regulatory role oversees that delivery of that service directly with the trusts. It's a bit complicated. There's a fantastic uh, video on the King's Fund, uh, a national charity in England that tried to explain the relationships, but it, it is a bit complicated to understand.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's helpful to hear so, uh, that that. Like you said, there's a regulatory function of not just having standards for improvement methods or providing resources for improvement. It sounds like it was it was much more than that.
1: Yeah. So if I still talk about NHS improvement, as I, I can't really talk with any knowledge at all yet about the joint venture. But NHS, it did have all three things that a regulator would have. So it did set direction. It did have a detection function, you a know, measurement function, and it did have a, an enforcement function, which can be all the things you tend to think of with a regulator you know it can be sticks it can be sanctions it can be fines but it did also have the carrot part of an enforcement function so they think we might think of in improvement so it had the education the support the resources the training the additional people who might be able to help um and and the way of sharing knowledge and learning across the system i'm not saying it could do better at that of course everyone can always do better that's the nature of improvement but that was that was definitely its remit Sure.
0: So looking back, um, it, how, how much would you say um, from, from your perspective, at least you know, from the NHS, is there a standard quote unquote NHS approach to lean or did you find variation across different hospitals and regions maybe based on whether it was simpler or other consultants who were in influence or how, uh, was there even an aim to have a consistent Approach to lean. What are are some of your experiences and recollections there?
1: The last few years, I don't think there has been a consistent approach at all. I think because of the nature of altruists and you know different uh, commissioning groups and GP practices are all separate. It's more uh, at an organisational level. So you may have organisations that say lean is the way that we do improvement here, and we have the patient first improvement system or the bolt Improving Care System. Um, so there's quite a lot of diversity in the improvement methods. Uh, there's not necessarily a shared language in improvement. There's, there's different terminologies for exactly the reasons you say. There's, you know, different people being helped. There's been different national products and so on. Uh, Virginia Mason have quite an impact, I guess, in the UK. Um, during the 2000s, they worked across the North East of England, uh, developing the northeast transformation system. So again, a lead based approach, but slightly different magical consultants that developed it. So it was more the John Black, Boeing, Virginia Mason way rather than the, I don't know if you want to call it the ThedaCare uh, simpler way. And so a slightly different. Um, Western Sussex in the in the south of England have been working with KPMG and Catalysis, a kind of a care Providence way of doing improvement. So again, a slightly different variation of the way of doing it and the the lead engineer on that work again an engineer i'm liking the engineers in healthcare he he was from gsk so GlaxoSmithKline. so i've no doubt he brought expertise with him from GlaxoSmithKline. so again a slightly different flavor of lead and we've all adapted what we do into context so there's a lot of diversity and i guess that's part of our challenge now as improvement practitioners which is we've tolerated a lot of variation in our own practice partly to get improvement going and to make Happen, to keep experimenting and you know there's a lot of advantages of that pluralistic approach but there's also gets to a point where that actually reduce uh, implementation fidelity and execution fidelity you know where's the sweet spot really on, on having a lot of diversity versus having some consistency in what we do um, and I kind of feel you know 10-15 years in may, maybe we'll get to that point where we need to as lead practitioners in healthcare really be a bit more serious about that, if we really want to make the difference um, and mature, I suppose improvement in healthcare of whichever yeah. brand—lead, H, I, Q, I—and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, I think we're probably getting to that point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there's—you uh, you, raised a really interesting point there. There's a need for balance of of somebody could take this really strict. Uh, definition to others or this really strict roadmap and say look this is the way it's done but if people say no and don't participate um, you, you haven't gained anything right
1: yeah and if it doesn't work in that context so a classic is I don't know um, implementing Kanban in a certain way with certain size cards well you know what it might not work in a laboratory that does whatever volume and has an x much uh, variety do you know so you can't always implement things the way they're designed. So you need that local context. And you know, the good thing about that, is that where you do, that's where your new innovation comes from and your new ways of improving come from. So, so you definitely need it. It's just, it's having it in, in kind of a safe quantity, isn't it, or having it in balance, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's difficult, I think. It's difficult, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah.
0: Um, Joy, there's one other thing I was hoping you'd tell us about. What is the vital signs lean improvement practice?
1: Okay, so that's uh, the programme that I work in now. Uh, it's a national programme and it's working with seven uh, sites across England to uh, develop lead improvement practice within those healthcare sites. And the site I'm working with is the uh, Penn and Lancashire Integrated Care Partnership uh, with East Lancashire Hospitals Trust and other partners. Um, and This is a national program whereby sites can access a kind of enhanced support from the national teams um, to develop uh, a Kaizen promotion office and develop lead training and so on within their organizations with the intent really of building their own improvement capability within the organization. So I'm not doing it for them. It's about how I can help them kind of at an expedited rate, skill up their own. Uh, improvement practice and their own skills and knowledge in d- implementing and executing lead practice on their sites. So uh, on my site, we're about six months in. So we've started some big work, value stream analysis work within a frailty pathway across the whole system, end to end, which is quite a complex pathway to pick for your first one. And uh, uh, We've uh, developed, uh, for example, a new uh, lead cell, if you want to use that language, uh, within the ambulatory department, which we've called Opera which is the older person's rapid assessment, uh, which is just launched in January. And it's, it's going pretty well at the moment and making a difference to some of our quality of care for patients as well as patient experience. Um, and part of the intent behind this big programme really is is something of what you talked about, that consistency of practice, which is, you know, our intent is how do we get the one or however many it is, million people who work in health and care in England to practice improvement every day. How do we move improvement from being a series of rapid improvement events into something everybody can do every day? Um, And leaders own that improvement work. It isn't seen as something that's done by a central team, and it isn't something that's done through the line. And that's partly why we've really uh, taken Qatar on board in terms of how we might build that daily practice, so improvement for daily work. And I will use the lean tools and knowledge to create those new leadership behaviours for improvement. So we're not just delivering better care and better experiences for patients, but we're also significantly influencing the leadership behaviours for improvement, which might help with sustainability and also in the longer run, help us to modify um, the improvement culture so that more improvement uh, is initiated and more improvement sustains in the longer run.
0: Well, maybe that's something we can um, we can talk about uh, in a future podcast.
1: Super. That'd be great. Thank
0: you. So that's a new new initiative. And I'm sure there's a lot of promise there and and, and we can follow up and um, maybe talk about some of the the progress and results and lessons learned.
1: Yeah, excellent. Hopefully some colleagues from those sites might want to join that too and share their own story. Oh, great, great idea. Great idea.
0: Well, and um, as, as we start to wrap up here, one, one other thing I'm sure is uh, difficult and challenging and, re- and rewarding, I wanted to ask you about your PhD studies and, and the research and the thesis that you did. If Maybe it's an unfair question to ask you to summarize that in a couple of minutes, but um, what, what, what did you look at in those studies?
1: So my thesis, uh, which was funded by the Health Foundation, a charity in England, uh, I did it at um, Manchester Business School with Professor Kieran Walsh and Professor Ruth Bowden and it was about healthcare regulation and improvement so it was kind of an improvement science healthcare policy PhD and I suppose when I started it I thought I had that kind of debbing perspective that gets oft quoted usually not very ba- not very well and it is misunderstood you know inspection is kind of the enemy of improvement you know you can't inspect for quality and I probably thought you know regulation bad improvement good you know, kind of a, a very polarized view of what regulation was and how if you let people do it themselves and don't put rules on them, then they'll do the right thing. I probably have that viewpoint. And my my thesis was kind of examining that relationship between regulation and improvement. And as I said, I have that bias. And I suppose as I read more and got more into the evidence base and, and talked to more people, I realized that I was probably going to have to completely revise my viewpoint. Um, which you know is an uncomfortable feeling we talked about earlier in, the, in this. Um, and I discovered you know there's lots of reasons why there's regulation, um, not least the fact that sometimes there are things that need to be regulated at a system level, that organisations and improvement teams within organisations can't impact. And a classic example usually given within the literature is that of air pollution, where no one organisation on their own can do something about that, and you need uh, national bodies to intervene to to put things in place to make change. And the other thing I found out is that, you know, regulation actually is improvement, which again, I found quite shocking, I didn't quite believe that. But you can substitute the word regulation for improvement or vice versa in a lot of documents. And if you, you can go and do this experiment yourself. And it does actually still follow because if you read the regulatory literature that the, one of the main aims of regulation is actually improvement in the public interest. Which I found, you know, five years ago, I found that really shocking because I just didn't think it was the same thing at all. I thought it was just rules and red tape that got in my way of making change happen. Um, and so I had to kind of revise my view completely. It's there to protect patients from harm in healthcare. That's what regulation is for. Um, and if that's not an aim of improvement, I, I don't know what improvement is for, really. Um, so that's what I say. I looked at, well, what can regulators do to, to not get in the way of improvers like me then if, that, if we've got shared aims and shared purpose? So sometimes regulators are criticised possibly right now, but for kind of being in the weeds and digging in too deep and intervening where perhaps they ought to, you know, just leave a bit of earth to cover. Um, so I wondered about, well, how would a regulator encourage improvement work but without going in and doing it for people or doing it to people rather? How could they do that? So, I look, well, what could they do to measure improvement practice or i called it improvement capability and encouraged the development of improvement capability rather than um you know kind of doing it for them sending in swap teams or whatever or you know sacking managers or whatever it is so i looked at, uh, amongst the literature about different ways that you can measure improvement capability so i looked at efqm models i looked at the Bald- baldridge prize um, and i looked at quite a lot of no- other research-based models that are perhaps less well known um Uh, to to your listeners but and there's a lot in the literature I mean I found 70 different models Um, some are famous some I've just never heard of before and I tried to synthesize those and I synthesized those into eight dimensions of improvement capability and if people want to read about that then then it, it is in online you can find it on Google Scholar and um I use that to then say, so if, if that's what improvement capability is, what do regulators look for now when they're making regulatory judgments and they're measuring people? Do they measure across all these dimensions now? Um, and how are they encouraging organisations to develop these eight dimensions? So what I found was uh, regulators are finding that really difficult because they're trying to balance that. We have to keep it safe and we want people to take risks to change which is difficult. It's difficult for us in organisations. It's also difficult for them as regulators. I also found that um, not all regulators have the improvement skills and knowledge that you might expect them to have. So they might not have ever learnt about LEAD or other improvement methods. So how could they then make judgments about people's improvement capability? Um, and I also found that sometimes there isn't that alignment of purpose because they are just looking for it to be safe and there's no harm rather than it's safe and there's no harm and it can improve so sometimes a misalignment of purpose so with that i then look I, I also looked at inspector reports and i also found that generally speaking inspectors tend to look at the things that they can find and touch so they'll look at strategy documents and they'll look at SBC charts or RAG reports and they'll look at um, you know, if training sessions or PDSAs have happened, but they wouldn't necessarily because it's just harder, look at well, what's going on for culture change, what's going on for leadership development, what's going on with stakeholders, and most crucially, what's going on with kind of voice of the customer. You know, how are we listening to patient need and patient voice and what patients value, what matters to patients? So in my research, I discovered that most regulatory agencies in my study um within the limitations of the study, didn't really take a lot of account within their own special reports of patient voice um, and patient focus. So I found it really fascinating, really interesting. And I think it really benefits my improvement practice now because I have that additional knowledge and different ways of framing some of what I do, particularly from Mm -hmm. both the national perspective and a local on the ground with, with clinical teams perspective.
0: Well, great. Well, I will put a link to the thesis document, like you said, through Google Scholar uh, in the notes for the episode. Um, I, I know you need to go because it's going to be the end of day, end of the day for you. But are, are there any other kind of final thoughts or reflection or lesson that you'd like uh, to leave for the listeners, Joy?
1: Um, so I suppose there's something I would say to healthcare staff, which is a um, we do one of the most amazing jobs in the world. We mm-hmm. we get to help people every day, make their lives better, and sometimes that's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? And um, mm. so that it's hard then to think, oh my goodness, I could do some improvement work as well. But there's something about really drawing on that motivation that we have around how we can make it better, and in doing so, also make our own lives better because we've taken out waste, we've taken out defects, we've taken out frustration. And that will help that actually frees up the time we've got to make improvement work. And I do genuinely believe everybody can be an improver. And I would just say to all healthcare staff, you can be too. And then you could be on a podcast like this. And um, <laughs> I'm sure you'd love to have them. Yes. So thank, you very much. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, thank, thank you, Joy. It's great talking to you. And I uh, really appreciate you joining us and, and having such a good conversation today. Thank you. Thank you.